This next session, woo, so exciting, they all have been. This is when we step out of the usual, um, the stuff we love, radio, and expand the stuff we love into film and to see how the two complement each other, how we can learn from one another, and uh, just like stretch, 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 stretch our ideas. Um, I know people sometimes talk about uh, producing radio in cinematic terms. And other people who, you know, and other times when I've seen movies, I think about the sort of the radio sensibility of some. So that's what this whole session is about, is like, is looking at that continuum. Um, here, to, here to lead this discussion are the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, supreme storytellers, as we all know. Recent Peabody Award winners and Third Coast Festival Award winners for the Sonic Memorial Project, devotees of sound. They are now working on a television series called Lost and Found Film that expresses some of their own interests in both film and sound. So I'm going to leave it over to them. We have many exciting surprises, not only, and the voice of God coming into this room later. Film, the other white meat. Okay. We are throwing the kitchen sink at this one today. We are uh, using every medium known to humanity, uh, DVDs and CDs and uh, guests that are with us by telephone. And I keep hearing the word haywire in my mind. So let's pray it doesn't happen now that we've honored it. One of the great pleasures of hosting a panel at Third Coast is delving into the lives and works of the panelists. Walter Murch and Randy Tom and Joe Frank, three men possessed by sound in film, in radio, in life. Today, we're going to step behind the scenes and deconstruct some soundtracks and radio dramas and look at how sound and some production techniques can shape and drive and enhance radio storytelling and how a mistake can become a discovery. Let me introduce our guests. Uh, ahoy, Walter. Yes, hello. <laughs> Walter is in England in the final throes of the mix of Anthony Minghella's new film, Cold Mountain, and will be talking to us via the bat phone. When I see Walter in my mind, he is standing, editing, because that's what he does. He stands when he edits. He has theories about that. He has theories about astronomy, about mathematics, about the music of the spheres. He's a Renaissance man, a visionary, a thinker. Walter Murch, film and sound editor. His credits conjure up some of the most remarkable films of the last four decades. The Conversation, The Godfathers Part 1, 2, and 3, Apocalypse Now, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and The English Patient, for which he received the Academy Award for both picture and sound editing. He wrote and directed the film Return to Oz and the book In the Blink of an Eye, A Perspective on Film Editing along with Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas and a group of renegade filmmakers from Los Angeles, Walter came to San Francisco in 1968 and created American Zoetrope, a place to make independent movies with controversial stories and unusual actors and pioneering groundbreaking soundtracks. It was Walter and his pals that coined the term sound design, a new credit to describe a new approach to film. Randy Tom. The Kitchen Sisters would not be here today if it wasn't for Randy Tom. 
1981, we were invited to attend a workshop much like this at Western Public Radio in San Francisco to improve our skills and immerse us in the medium. One of the teachers was Randy Tom. Randy had been in public radio at WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and at KPFA in Berkeley. He soon felt the lure of film and began to call anyone connected to film sound that he could find. One man took his call, Walter Murch. Walter invited Randy to observe in the mixing studio for the day, and at the end of the day, he asked Randy to write an essay describing what he had seen. When I asked Randy if Walter did that regularly with newcomers, he said Walter had never done that before or since. Randy's first assignment, recording flies for the opening scene of a new movie, Apocalypse Now. At that Western Public Radio workshop, Randy brought us into the, to watch the mix of Francis Coppola's One from the Heart. It was that music from that soundtrack that was playing when he walked in. We saw this big mixing board, these men sitting in the dark, connecting this mysterious music to these experimental images, and it felt like home. Nikki and I have always thought we make movies without the pictures. Randy experiments with recording all kinds of elements, water, fire, metal, ice. His work is subtle and evocative, and his sound makes you see deep into a scene. Randy's worked on over 45 films and many radio shows, dramas mostly with Berkeley producer Eric Bowersfeld. A short list of his sound credits as designer, editor, mixer, or recordist include Wild at Heart, Castaway, Earl Morris's Brief History of Time, Spaceballs, David Mamet's House of Cards. He's received an Academy Award for The Right Stuff and been nominated for Never Cry Wolf, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, Contact, and Forrest Gump. Joe Frank. <laughs> Joe began in radio on WBAI in 1976. His first series was called In the Dark, a late-night collection of monologues, improvised sketches, and music. No matter what time of day Joe's work on the air, no matter what time of day Joe's work is on the air, it feels like midnight. Intimate, dreamy, surreal, always walking the gangplank. Joe has been honored with nearly every creative award there is in this medium. Tonight he'll receive another. His work has leapt out of the radio and onto the stage, sometimes taking Joe with it. He's written plays and fiction. Since 1986, Joe has had an ongoing relationship with KCRW Santa Monica, an independent producer, quasi-anchored at a major station, showing what a little stability and a regular outlet can do for someone's creative output and for the sound of public radio. Joe's weekly dramas and monologues are steamy, erotic, political, spiritual. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Steamy, erotic. <laughs> Political, spiritual, confessional, mesmerizing, excruciatingly painful and funny. Rent a family, work in progress, karma, the death of Trotsky, the OJ Chronicles. When she's asleep, she looks like an angel. The end. Google him and you'll find five full pages of titles spanning some three decades over 250 hours of storytelling. In his letter of support to Third Coast for Joe's Lifetime Achievement Award, Francis Coppola wrote, Joe Frank's themes are universal and resonate for all of us. They explore love, death, loneliness, alienation, spiritual longing, and the search for the meaning in life. 
His shows raise the most interesting and enduring questions in new and original ways and are consistently thought-provoking and very funny. His work spanned decades, yet his shows remain timeless and relevant. Welcome to all of you. And Nikki Silva, who is eternal. <laughs> And Joe is here with two of his longtime collaborators, David Rapkin and Arthur Miller, and they'll join us later. So let's get this party started. It, it seems so poetic to us that um, one of the grand masters of sound, the invisible art, such an invisible art, would be with us by phone, in voice only. You still there with us, Walter? I sure certainly am, yes. <laughs> How's it going over there? Across uh, the good. We just... Um, I'm a little shell-shocked because we've just uh, today locked uh, Cold Mountain. We had a, a uh, uh, screening this morning, and uh, we've made a couple of changes uh, just uh, half an hour ago, and now it's locked. So we can start the final mix on Wednesday. So we're, we're right up against it, but that's, uh, that's far for the course. So give us an insider tip. What's the, um, what should we be listening for when we listen to Cold Mountain? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get back to us on that. Yep. Okay. Um, just as for everybody, when we are talking to Walter, the, our microphone is the receiver. Basically, he's hearing us through that. So if you ask a question, we all need to be right up here. Um, when we first began our conversations about this panel seeing sound, Walter suggested we start with the opening scene of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Uh, Walter, why? Well, it's, um, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, uh, if you include Welles uh, in this, uh, every, everyone here is, uh, got their start in radio. I, I began working in radio at WRVR in New York, Randy, I know, started Radio Joe, obviously works in radio. You guys work in radio. And Wells uh, cut his uh, cinematic teeth uh, making, uh, as you called it, soundtracks without picture um, in the 1930s, uh, breaking all kinds of new ground in, uh, in, in what you could do with creatively with sound uh, in terms of naturalistic sound, overlaps, uh, montages, all kinds of, of things. And he brought that uh, suitcase of tricks with him when he came to Hollywood, and he saw no reason to get rid of it. Uh, and uh, one of the things that characterizes Wells's films is a, uh, certainly compared to the other films that were being made at the time, is this great conceptual density of sound. Uh, uh, that he augmented then with this fantastic density of pictures. So it's uh, it's coming at you from both above and below. The the, the density of images, the, the, his whole development of deep focus photography and the way he used editing, and then um, a soundtrack for both uh, Citizen Kane or in this case uh, what we're going to see, Touch of Evil, that tells you as much about the film if you if you just listen to the soundtrack as it, uh, as as any normal film would tell you with all the, uh, the both the visual and the the sound running um, however uh, he was always fighting uh, he was always uh, 
battling upstream against the general current, which didn't want that kind of uh, density and felt that it was confusing uh, or expensive or both. And um, the, w one of the things that was dispensed with early on in the studio's finishing of Touch of Evil was his conception for how to begin the, uh, the film. And he had worked out a whole soundtrack concept that went along with the justly renowned, uh, famous opening shot of Touch of Evil, which has influenced countless filmmakers, both in their filmmaking and also inspired many people to go into film. Um, it's a it's a three-minute, 40-second uh, shot that um, arcs over this uh, town and border town in Mexico actually crosses the border into uh, the United States uh, and ends with uh, just just before an explosion. The, the car that you've seen at the beginning of the shot has a bomb planted in its trunk, and at the end of the shot, uh, the bomb, which has been set at three minutes and forty seconds, in fact goes off three minutes and forty seconds into the film. Um, Should we show that scene now and then come back? Is one. We have that scene queued up. Why don't we watch? Well, let me just say uh, one thing more about uh -huh. it, which is that um, he, um, they, they, they took off or, or never realized what he wanted and put Henry Mancini's uh, title music over the shot and also put titles over it. Um, when we were doing the restoration on Touch of Evil in, in uh, 1998, um, the, the, one of the first things that uh, was in Wells's instructions to us, or, or to the world, uh, was um, no titles over the shot and a, a montage of music that would be coming from the various environments within this world. Um, I'll just read a couple of sentences from the memo. Um, uh, as the camera moves through the streets of this Mexican border town, the plan was to feature a succession of different and contrasting Latin American musical numbers, the effect, that is, of our passing one cabaret orchestra after another um, uh, in honky-tonk districts on the borders, uh, that's the border between the United States and Mexico. Loudspeakers are all over the entrance of every joint, large or small, each blasting out its own tune by way of a come on or pitch for the tourists. Um, anyway, it, it, it's, a, it's the sonic equivalent of that. It also gives weight to the car itself because the car has, a, has music coming out of its radio. So when you see the picture now, you can track the, how close or far away the car is by whether you're, you're hearing the characteristic sound coming from that uh, car. Okay, we're going into the dark and we'll be back with you in a All few right. minutes. Don't hang up.
folks uh, American citizens? I am, yes. Where were you born, miss? Mrs. What? Philadelphia. The name is Vargas. Hey, Jim. You see who's here? Sure, Mr. Vargas. Out on the trail of another dope ring? Out on the trail of a chocolate soda for my wife. Your wife? Yeah, your bride, officer. <laughs> hey, can I get through? A lot of talk up here about how you cracked that Grandy business. Yeah, what? we hear you caught the big boss. Uh, only one of them. The Grandies are a big family. Good night. No purchases, Mr. Lineker. Hey, hey, I got this... You're American citizen, miss. No, I got this ticking noise. Yeah, okay. No, really, this Good ticking night. noise in my head. Mike, do you realize this is the very first time we've been together in my country? Do you realize I haven't kissed you in over an hour? Walter, how did you unearth that sound? Um, what we, one of our rules uh, to ourselves when we were doing this is that we didn't want to uh, bring in anything from outside the universe of the film. Uh, luckily, the, both the negative and the master magnetic soundtrack for Touch of Evil were in pretty good shape. Um, and the, the soundtrack had the dialogue on a separate track from the music, which was separate from the sound effects. So um, I could uh, browse down later on in the film and collect fragments of music that appear, uh, you know, 40 or 80 minutes into the film and then uh, bring them up into the front and create a, a um, uh, uh, overlapping fabric of musical sounds. Um, once I'd removed the Henry Mancini, uh, which was upfront title music uh, from the music track. So we were both able to remove the Henry Mancini, which is what uh, uh, Wells had, had wanted. Um, and then to create this fabric of uh, pieces of source music from the rest of the film. And in fact, once when you listen to the, the musical soundtrack of the film, it's almost entirely source except for two, two places where there is what you would normally call score. Um, but he was, uh, Wells was very interested in using source music, that is to say music being played by people in the film, and to have it to have it uh, have a score-like effect uh, the, on the audience, particularly the the murder of the Akim Tamarov character, Grandy, is done entirely accompanied by source music. Uh, so it, it was just a there was a gold mine of material elsewhere in the film that I uh, fragmented and pulled up into the front. Okay, Randy. <clears throat> Hi, Walter. Hi, Randy. <laughs> Randy, would you like to introduce this next piece of footage that we're going to see and kind of set it up for us? And we're going to play the opening of the movie Contact, the Jodie Foster movie. And Jodie Foster plays an astronomer uh, who hears a message from an intelligent life source outside of our solar system. Uh, literally on headphones, 
and uh, goes on to uh, meet those entities eventually in the movie. But in the beginning of the movie, what we hear is um, a montage of broadcast sounds. The, the conceit is that we start with a shot of planet Earth and we gradually pull back away from planet Earth. And as we pull back and away from the planet, we catch up to and overtake and pass radio waves that have been sent out from the planet. And of course, in a, a literal uh, physical term, it, it's a lie because not only can we not uh, pass radio waves as far as we know, but the radio waves that we're hearing initially would be way out farther from Earth than uh, we hear them. This is where but Randy the artist meets Randy the scientist. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I, at one point in my life I thought I was going to be a scientist, and so uh, this offends some of my scientific sensibilities, which is weird for me because I, more often than not, since I tend more toward the artist end of things these days, I'm, I'm used to telling people, you know, don't worry about reality, you know, it's a movie. It's, <laughs> if it feels right, it is right. Uh, but something about this uh, offends the residual <laughs> scientist in me. Uh, and then eventually we pull out towards the ends of the universe and uh, emerge from the eye, the pupil of the eye of the child that uh, Jodie Foster eventually becomes, the grown-up version of. So this is the beginning so of So for contact. a group of radio producers who are now going to watch this, what do you want them to be thinking about most. I should also say that uh, a, a lot of the impact of this will be lost because it's not possible in here to play it in 5.1 surround sound. The way that we set it up was that as we pull back away from Earth, the sounds begin in the surrounds, that is these bits and pieces of music and speeches and found and lost sound. Uh, first just a jumble and then more and more individual identifiable things start in the surrounds and then whoosh past us and then disappear into the front as we overtake and pass them. And so obviously we're not going to get that effect in uh, mere stereo. Um, mere stereo is loosed upon the world. Shall we roll? Yeah. Never 
Nothing new on the doors. Experience. 9 gfo cq this is w9 gfo here come back cq cq this is w9 gfo here come back I already want to change our order here of our sound for a second because perhaps you're wondering now how does this all connect to radio. Todd, could we go to the Sonic Signature CD, pull Joe's CD out for one second? I just, uh, Nikki and I have collaborated with Randy on and off over the years and we had uh, just seen Contact and we were starting this new series called Lost and Found Sound and Randy was one of the first people that stepped in with us on the collaboration. And is it possible to play it's track one on the sonic signature for a second? Todd? I can say a couple of things about this, yeah. if that's okay. I am the Edison Phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world, to delight those who have never Good evening. This is Admiral. The beer with that new 1952 tape. Y'all are taking it. are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? Today I also got a letter from Emil. And his P.S., he said, we ski in 43. I sure hope so. She knew I hope so, too. Just in the context of sound design in general, I wanted to say that good sound design or, or great sound design when you're lucky uh, is never about adding sound to something at the end of a process. 
great sound is always, in my experience, an intrinsic part of the writing and of the directing and of the editing of the piece, whether it's a film or, uh, or you know, what, what Joe does, uh, certainly true of uh, the, all the great Wells moments that I know of. Uh, you simply don't think, wow, I'm gonna add this cool sound to this piece and it's gonna make it work. It, all, it has everything to do with context and that's why it, it always has to begin with the writing. So I, I don't, the, the terrible thing that often happens to us who do movie sound is that directors and producers get desperate about their films and they think we have to save this film with sound. And so we have to go out and find a genius sound designer who's gonna come up with sounds that are so cool that it'll distract people from how lousy the movie is. <laughs> uh, none of the movies we're showing today, by the way. <laughs> And that's both insulting to us because they're not really taking us seriously. They're expecting us to be magicians. Um, somebody once said, uh, I, I don't know who it was, uh, when being asked to do the impossible, um, uh, I'm a genius, I'm not a magician. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a huge difference. Uh, so the, I'll just say something brief about the 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 contact piece, um, you get the feeling when you finally get to that little girl's eye that maybe she's either hearing some of that or has heard some of that or will hear some of those sounds that you've passed through or that's the context. And that's the payoff that I, I think makes all of that sound resonate in you seeing her face and associating her face with that. It's not the, you know, as wonderful as many of those sounds in that montage are, it's not anything intrinsic about those sounds. It's the context of the movie that makes it great. And so that's what you think about when you're writing and fabricating a piece where you want to use sound. Was that always part of the script and that idea, or how did that come about? It, it came about pretty early in the process. It, it was uh, originally Carl Sagan wrote the, uh, the story and a script, and it was revised quite a bit, uh, but uh, that was around for quite a while. And can you deconstruct it a little bit for us, just how, how you went about approaching uh, It that? was the very last thing that we mixed in the film, literally the last several hours of mixing before we had to let go of it so that it could be distributed were spent working on that sequence. And the reason is that there was so much ongoing debate about what should and shouldn't go into that montage that the lawyers were scrambling to try to get rights to it all. And we didn't know literally until you know five minutes before we started mixing the last few pieces that we could legally put in there. And I wouldn't recommend that approach to anybody. And, uh, a brief technical note, it, we wouldn't have been able to do it that quickly because as, as I said, we were panning every one of those sounds and it's not merely panning from the surrounds into the front speakers, it's panning from the left rear speaker into the right front speaker and the right rear speaker into the center and pretty complex panning. And the only way that we were able to do that is quite a bit of the panning on the pieces that we were fairly sure would go in had been pre-done in Pro Tools and then we just bust the Pro Tools outputs into the mixing console, which were pre-assigned to the right speakers, and that's the way it worked.
All right, Joe, would you like to introduce this piece that we're going to hear? Um, I'll just say that um, it illustrates the, um, the difficulty of being me. <laughs> okay. Roll tape. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah, that's Is it the smoldering beauty of my purple eyes? carelessly? Is it my long eyelashes? Is it my muscular volcanic energy? Is it my perfectly sculptured Greek body? Who knows? But they all find me irresistible. They want to touch me and rub up against me. They want a hair from my head, an article of my clothing. They want me to breathe on them. Is it my suave, sweet, utterly charming, disarming, yet unassuming, down-to-earth style? Is it the quality of my mind, the endlessly amusing, sometimes profoundly moving stories I tell? Is it my command of language, the depth of my insights, the sheer scope and range of my knowledge, the synthesis of my intellect as it ranges over a wide field of topics, able to discuss the manufacture of extruded molybdenum, various schools of Japanese sword-making under the Taranga Shogunate, the tempered scale before Bach, the history of aniline dyes, North African leather curing techniques, and subatomic particles attendant to the cluster of black holes, as postulated by Hawking. Is it because I'm a world-class expert in bioluminescence and have developed my own species of fluorescent porcupines? All I know is that my presence in a room is electrifying. I can see desire burning hotly like coals in people's eyes when they look at me. I can see them undressing me, the smoldering gazes of women compulsively crossing and uncrossing their legs, men grinding their molars while sweat forms in hot beads on their brows, and teenage girls digging their nails into the palms of their hands, their lips parted, their eyes wet with desire. I was a perfect renaissance painting of a baby with pearly white teeth, creamy peach-colored skin, hands and feet perfectly formed. My ears were small shells, my lips a red flower. My face recalled cherubim, the most beautiful of choiring angels. Next to me... Randy said that uh, Randy said that Davy and I should have been caressing you through the entire. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the point of that is that it's a curse and a burden, and uh, a terrible misfortune to uh, be as spectacularly desirable as I am. And as you can see, I mean, it's amazing that people are not rushing the stage right now, but. <laughs> 
So what drew you into radio, Joe? How'd you get here? Um, well, I listened to, I began listening to WBAI in New York City and uh, listening to Larry Josephson, who had a wonderfully imaginative and funny radio show in the mornings, uh, every, every morning, uh, and uh, was inspired by the work of other people I heard and uh, really was sort of at a loss and went to a radio station and somehow thought that maybe this would be a medium that uh, I could you know, experience some feeling of fulfillment uh, in. Uh, I was a teacher before, and I, before, just before that time, and I was, I guess, a very good classroom teacher, and people used to, the students used to be amused and uh, involved, and so maybe I thought of that, and I thought about simply enlarging the audience. We're going to come back. Uh, in a little bit to talk about Joe's voice and his delivery and his sound. And we're going to just show another uh, film and bring Walter back in, but I, I want to talk about your whole entire way you deliver and how you came to that. Walter, are you still there? Still here. Okay, good. Um, let's pick back up with the, that moment in your life of uh, American Graffiti into the conversation. We're going to screen the opening of the conversation and, and sort of the influence of Wells and even in American Graffiti, that idea of worldizing. Can you, can you tell people about what that is and how to do it? Um, uh, one of the, the things that uh, characterized uh, the, the work we did at at film school at USC was that we, we had very little money in the way of money and equipment. It's all changed now, but back in those days, it was everything was very threadbare. And um, the, the idea that you could change something in the mix was really not, uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't practically going to happen because we didn't have the experience or the equipment. So I started thinking, well, why don't I just make it the way I want it to sound before we go into the mix? And, and thought about uh, that. And I was particularly interested in uh, voices, in, in, in how they uh, relate to the space around them. Um, so I thought up the idea of uh, taking a, the sound that I had um, and then playing it on a tape recorder in the right kind of space uh, a bathroom or a gymnasium or whatever it was, and using another tape recorder to collect that ambience, and then in the mix, run those two tracks together and, and blend them uh, in, to get the right blend. The, the first track would have the clarity and power of the sound, the other track would have the, the fog of atmosphere around it, and you'd just balance the two of them until you got what you wanted. Um, that just seemed to be the practical answer to the dilemma that uh, that we had. Uh, it was it wasn't until I started working on Touch of Evil that I realized, uh, reading Wells's notes, that uh, he'd all he'd done it all before me, uh, and he goes on at great length about this technique uh, in in Touch of Evil of uh, playing music uh, out of a speaker through. Um, uh, into the alleyway of uh, the uh, 
near the sound department at Universal and re-recording it on another uh, soundtrack and, and playing that in the film. Um, fortunately, the, uh, uh, I, I used this uh, intermittently in all of the films I worked on uh, professionally. You can hear it in the beginning, the wedding scene of The Godfather has it in it, uh, even in uh, THX, uh, that uh, George Lucas's film has it. Uh, but uh, George Lucas's next film after THX was American Graffiti, and the idea there was to have wall-to-wall -wall music, that uh, for the 110 minutes of the film, there would be 106 minutes of music uh, coming out of the radios uh, in this whole environment. And uh, that presented a real opportunity for this technique, but it also had a practical reason, which is that if, if you didn't do something, you would drive the audience crazy. I, I remember uh, Verna Fields, um, the film editor who, who helped uh, on the first assembly of the film. Um, she had cut, uh, or was about to cut Jaws uh, later on, and she had been a mentor to us at film school. And she took me aside and said, Walter, please convince George not to use all this music. He's gonna ruin a perfectly good story by doing this. People are just gonna go crazy. I said, well, Vernon, we said, we're going to try it. I think, you know, we have some things we're going to try, but uh, this is what we're going to do. And she went away shaking her head. But um, what this technique does, uh, and in, in simple terms, you have these two tracks, one of them the clear track, the other the, the atmosphere track of the same thing, um, is it will give you the audio equivalent of depth of field in photography. Uh, if, you're, if you're taking a um, portrait of somebody who's up front and close, um, you, you actually want the background to be out of focus so that the eye can immediately uh, zero in on what you want it to, which is the face in the foreground. Well, in this case, the dialogue of the characters is the face in the foreground. And we wanted a way to make the music seep into the background, almost like a die, um, and, and, uh, and yet be present um, by diffusing it, by, by throwing it out of focus. And then at the appropriate moment, we would be able to bring it back in um, after the dialogue ended and the scene is, is resolving and tr changing to another scene, we could bring it back up in focus and make the music the, the prominent uh, device. Walter, we're going to watch a little bit of the conversation, and then maybe you could deconstruct how this was done. Okay. Thank you. 
Somebody's baby boy. Honey, I do, I think. He was once somebody's baby boy, and he had a mother and a father who loved him, and now there he is, half dead on a...
Could I say one or two quick things before we go back to Walter? Um, when Walter and Francis Coppola and many others were making this film, I was still in radio, uh, but it's certainly one of the things, seeing it and hearing it, that propelled me toward uh, working in movies. This film is so rich on so many levels. If you understand, you know, suppose, I think supposedly Beethoven once said, if you understand my music, you can never know unhappiness again. <laughs> I, I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. But um, if you understand this movie and take it seriously and watch it a bunch of times and think about it deeply, you'll be well on your way to being uh, a sound designer uh, because this film has just about everything in it. It's like a textbook in terms of how to put together a film that takes sound seriously and uses sound powerfully. It's one of the few sounds, f few films that are truly about listening. Uh, I've, used, I've resisted using this film, I obviously didn't work on the film, but I've also resisted using it in demonstrations that I've done because it seemed like a cheat because it's about sound. It's about recording this conversation and about this guy, the Gene Hackman character's point of view. And so I think, well, it's, you know, it's about sound, so I don't want to but the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's not really about sound. It's, it's about a lot of things, but one of the things that it's about is listening and hearing things correctly and hearing things not correctly. And I don't want to steal uh, Walter's fire, but I just wanted to interject that. How's your fire, Walter? <laughs> okay, what are you thinking as you're listening? What should people... Well, it's, just, it's a very strange experience to be here uh, we, we started shooting that film 31 years ago in next month. Um, so it's just it's very strange to be, be here in London listening to this faint uh, echoey sound coming over the telephone and talking to all of you there about it. It's, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it feels very present. It, it, I, I feel like I, I just, didn't I just finish working on that film? <laughs> Walter, do I have this right? Is that the first movie that you edited? Uh, it was the first feature that I edited, yeah. How did you handle that first shot? I mean, if you could just, how did you come, if you'd never done it before, how did you know how to do it? Um, well, uh, the, the only, only uh, uh, way that I interacted with that shot, I was, I was uh, working on the... Um, uh, I think I was working on the the assembly of the the, the stuff on the ground, and, and they were shooting the that opening shot uh, uh, as the last thing to shoot. And I got the phone call from uh, uh, Francis's assistant on the set saying, "How long should this shot be?" And uh, you know, I was I, first of all I had I didn't have any experience. This was my first film editing, so I thought, "What? The director is asking me how long the shot should be?" Um, but it was supposed to carry the credits on it, and they wanted to set the zoom. They had they had a new device that would automatically uh, zoom a shot electronically. Um, you didn't have to use your hand to to turn the lens. It, w it would turn. Uh, by uh, remote control, and you could set it to creep very slowly. It's a technique that Francis uh, had used at the beginning uh, of The Godfather for the zoom back from um, the Undertaker's face. And here he was using it the opposite way, zooming in on this scene. So I 
quickly calculated how many credits there were and multiplied by some X factor and phoned it back in, and that's, that's how it wound up being the length that is. Um, there was a tremendous amount of footage for all of the, the material in Union Square. All of the conversation was filmed as a real event. It was, it was treated documentary style, and, and Cindy Williams and Fred Forrest were in among a few people who were acting, but most, peop most of them were just people who didn't know they were being photographed. I, don't, I have no idea how they dealt with the rights issue. Um, but a lot of those people are innocent victims of uh, the film trap has, has caught them here. But I think there were six cameras shooting um, all the time for a week. Um, so I, this, and this was the first thing they shot. So after the first week, I, I sat there uh, looking at this mound of footage thinking, oh my God, <laughs> now what's going to happen? Um, but you know, you you uh, you start to thread your way through it and uh, uh, find out where the good pieces are um, and start to knit them together into uh, something that can tell the story. When we were doing the sound check earlier in the day with Walter, um, he told me this term, the acoustic being. It's so great hearing you as the acoustic being. I, um, Randy, I'm going to ask you now to introduce this next piece of film that you're going to show. Okay. <clears throat> um, what is it? It's called, <laughs> it's called Wild. Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. Uh, can I say David one Lynch. more quick thing about the conversation <laughs> before? That's why I didn't know. I was still in conversation land. Um, we, there, the session before this in this room was about uh, mistakes and accidents and how sometimes good things can come from those. And uh, I think one of the, the greatest successes ever from an accident, if you want to call it an accident, happened in this film. Um, and it had everything to do with uh, Mr. Murch, who's on the other end of the phone line. Um, the Fred Forrest character, the guy who's walking around with the young woman in Union Square in San Francisco, which is where that is, um, at one point says he'd kill us if he had the chance, talking about apparently a bad guy. Um, and you hear that phrase over and over again through the film as the Gene Hackman character is playing back this recording, this surreptitious recording he's made of their conversation. Yeah. And you don't realize as an audience member until the end when the Gene Hackman character realizes it that that's not really what he said at all. He said, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And so uh, one of the many, many, many things that I learned at the uh, knee of Mr. Murch um, is that uh, people uh, are filters. And the, one of the central irony of this, ironies of this story is that Gene Hackman character, who's a master recordist, who's a master filterer of conversations, ignores the most important filter of all, which is the filter of his own consciousness, and he realizes that through this whole time he's been hearing the wrong inflection of what was said, and he realizes at the same time then that this young guy is not the good guy, he's the bad guy. And that didn't occur to the filmmakers until post-production, when Walter was listening to various takes of that scene 
and one time Fred Forrest said it differently. And uh, the, the classic light bulb uh, went off in Walter's head and he thought, hmm, maybe that's the movie. <laughs> and then went about re-editing the film in order to make that one of the centerpieces, if not the centerpiece of the film. How's that for a useful mistake? <laughs> Speaking of okay. mistakes, we're going to hold off on Wild at Heart for a moment, because speaking of mistakes, Joe, when we were talking about this panel and talking about mistakes that become discoveries, had a Lulu. So. Uh, I, um, as a monologist on the radio, it was always very important, uh, the quality and the timbre and the, the, the way my voice sounded. Uh, and I was very self-conscious about it, but it was always very important. In any event, I, many years into my career, one day I was, I had record, I w would always record in Dolby, and I had recorded uh, a monologue in Dolby, and I was editing it, listening to it, and it sounded remarkably wonderful, and uh, uh, it, the voice quality was just searing and, and gritty, and I was thinking, my God, what, it's amazing what you're doing, uh, how did you... Uh, and then an engineer came in and he said, what's the matter with you? You, you, uh, this, you recorded this in Dolby and you're playing it back in non-Dolby. That's why you have, you have too much hiss. And, and, uh, and then I realized that, uh, you know, it, and he switched it back to Dolby. And then it was my normal voice, which I despised. And, uh, <laughs> and then I went back to the, the non-Dolby, which was full of pops and uh, crackles in my mouth, which were a problem that I had to edit out. But the, the, the quality of it was astonishing to me, and so that was what I did in, in the future. I always recorded in Dolby, played back in non-Dolby, and presented the non-Dolby version of my voice with all the mouth noises and pops edited out. <laughs> and uh, so we have uh, an illustration of pre-error Joe Frank and post uh, mistake Joe Frank. Okay, but one thing, Todd, um, we have to switch CDs because we just... That's a different CD than what's in there, and you want to go to Joe Frank Knight, track two on the panel CD, and there will be track two and then track three. So you'll hear the difference. We call it before and after. <laughs> oh, no, that's the second I'm sitting at a dinner stop, party. Stop, stop, stop. Uh, this is the one that says Joe Frank Knight. We apologize for throwing curves. Yeah. It's Haywire, isn't that the word you mentioned? Haywire. Before? Okay. So this is the On way the I... On panel CD. I'm sitting at a dinner party attended by Paul Pot, Hitler... Stop. This is after. <laughs> to the one before, I think. Astonishing. The idea of cataclysm was not so improbable or remote. Tremors were recorded every few weeks. Isn't that and hideous? a major earthquake had been predicted. The mountains were moving to the ocean, and the coast highway, built between the mountains and the ocean, buckled under the advancing pressure. When fires started, most of them caused by arsonists, they spread quickly 
fueled by the Sata and okay, the I think we've heard enough of that the one. The fires and, uh, burned off. <laughs> and you'll also notice another thing, uh, which I, I noticed it was a plaintive kind of quality. I would end a sentence on a slight up note instead of going down. And so there are two differences. The other is this one. You'll see. Let's see if we get the right one now. I'm sitting at a dinner party attended by Paul Pot, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Seated at another smaller table are Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic, Pinochet, and some others that I don't recognize. And then there's a third table, sort of a children's table. It has shorter legs and smaller children's chairs. And sitting there are Richard Speck, Gary Gilmore, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and Charlie Manson. And they're all wearing party hats. They're not very much respected by the heavyweights. They were small time. They didn't get much done. <laughs> they were pikers. <laughs> So you can hear the difference. And have you stuck with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> no going back? No going back, no. You've created these entire worlds and uh, movies in my mind with just your voice and music. How'd you do that? <laughs> these are really impossible questions. I. I um, I really don't know the answer to that. I, I think uh, selecting music is extremely important. If you find the right piece of music, uh, you're halfway there. And um, I, I don't know how to And respond. how do you find these pieces of music? And they loop and... They're looped, yeah. You listen a lot and you try to find something that uh, you think is really evocative and is going to carry, is, is going to actually deepen the emotion uh, of the piece and uh, is going to enhance it and uh, I mean sometimes I've actually thought that music was more important than anything else that if you had uh, you know I'd listen to my monologues in the clear and I'd think oh, I don't know it's not really that good but then I, when I added the piece of music that I selected suddenly just took it to another level and uh, I think some people have uh, are gifted at finding the right music and if you can if you do that you really or uh, you really are enhancing your work. And if you find a piece of music that is sort of all right, then, then you're not. So are the pieces created at home when you're writing your monologues, or are they created more in the studio? Or how, what comes first? Are you hearing it or seeing it? Or? Well, first of all, I have to say that this work is all very collaborative. I hardly do anything exclusive, you know, entirely on my own. Um, I write uh, collaboratively with David Rapkin, who's here this evening. What David. happens, or this morning, I mean. David, you want to just stand up so Yes, David, please stand up. Know you and take your bow. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> please uh, remove that gentleman now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and uh, the way I work with David is I, I have an idea. I know what I want uh, generally, what the subject is going to be that, we're going to, that I want to talk about. And then uh, I record our conversation. And we'll talk for hours uh, sometimes, back and forth. And uh, I record it all. And then uh, I listen and I sort of put it together on the basis of what, uh, of we, of what we collaboratively come up with. And in terms of other, you know, if there are programs with actors or with others, they also contributed, uh, contribute because these are all improvised uh, work. So uh, I'm really rarely alone in, in doing this. And the, the sound of your voice is so crucial to it. And, and the, that technical change for me turns it into a kind of whisper, mm -hmm. which makes it more intimate. You know, you, when you're whispering to somebody, you're telling them something intimate, and so it, you feel like you're more inside the character, I think, because of that when you're listening to it. You know, one of the things I think that's wrong with a lot of public radio is that it's painfully, it sounds painfully intentional and coherent. I must be extremely clear <laughs> while I'm saying this to you. And it tends to lack life. And things that are full of life are eccentric and have a lot of character. And that's one of the great things about your pieces. Uh, you really feel like they're practically living things. Oh, thank you, Randy. Walter? Uh, yes. I was thinking when Joe was talking about the Dolby voice pre and post Dolby, the, uh, some of the stories about Apocalypse Now and finding the tone of Martin Sheen's narration in that. Can, can you talk about how that uh, voice of Willard came to be? Um, sure. It, it, um, the, uh, um, one of the key sound editors working on Apocalypse uh, is a, a gentleman named Les Hodgson, who's an English sound editor. And he worked on Moby Dick, um, John Huston's Moby Dick, and that also had narration. Richard Basehart was the, the character who played uh, um, I, uh, the, the one who survives. What's his name? Um, anyway, he, um, uh, they, they, he was narrating the film, and Houston was unsatisfied with it, and they, they'd been working all morning, and finally uh, Richard Basehart, who was in the other room, um, Leaned, look, was looking down at John in the in the adjacent room, uh, and he said, "John, what do you think I should do now?" And uh, he was talking very close to the microphone by accident, and John whirled, uh, Houston whirled around and said, "That's what you should do, exactly like that. Do everything, do it just like that." And um, it, it was it had a very similar kind of sound to uh, Joe's voice uh, that we've just heard. Uh, compared to what Randy was parodying before, which was narration spoken uh, from, a, from a podium, so to speak. Um, and of course, the sound engineers uh, there, this is back in the 1950s, freaked out because of just what Joe was saying. No, but that will get all the clicks and the pops. And, and Houston said, we'll deal with that later. That's what I want. I want that intimate sound like somebody's uh, head is lying on the pillow next to you and they're talking to you that close. Um, so that's how they did Moby Dick, and when we were doing uh, Julia, which also Les worked on, uh, we had we, the same thing and we used the same technique, and then when we, when we did Apocalypse Now, 
it just seemed to be the way to go. And uh, so we, we just positioned the mic abnormally close uh, to Mar Martin Sheen and told him to talk as if he's talking to somebody on the pillow next to him, uh, just a very low, intimate voice. And we, we uh, positioned it to minimize the artifacts, the, the clicks and pops uh, that, that come from that proximity. And what we couldn't fix, uh, what we couldn't, what, what got through, we would just edit out, just uh, as Joe was saying. But it is an extremely effective way at making somebody else's voice sound like they're coming from inside your own head. It's the closest we can get in radio or in film to uh, a, a speaker inside the head of the audience, um, and thus rendering it extremely subjective. We're going to take a look at a bit of Apocalypse now. I think we're going to go to Wild are we Heart. Wild oh, Heart. This is so Wild painful. Heart. We are this five is. things into a 14 excerpt list that we obviously aren't going to get to all of, so we're jockeying. I think okay. let's leap back to Leaping Wild back. at Heart. Sorry. For those of you who haven't seen Wild at Heart, I'll set up this little excerpt that we're going to play. First, I should say that it's a pretty crude uh, uh, video dub. Um, the uh, the, the I had to get it from a VHS tape because it's not on DVD yet, as far as I can tell. And not only does it, it's, it's fairly bad quality picture, but there's a time code window at the bottom because the person that I asked to copy it thought that I was going to edit sound on it, I guess, and be a little late in the game. <laughs> in this sequence, the Nick Cage character and the Laura Dern character are uh, sort of post-coital, and talking about um, various things, including smoking and about her father's death. And fire is a theme throughout, sometimes in serious and sometimes in funny ways. And what you realize later in the film is that the Nick Cage character actually had something to do with her father's death, which we flash back to once or twice in this uh, sequence. And I want you to notice that before we flash back to it the last time when we see the guy running through the uh, room on fire, just before we flash to it, uh, the Nick Cage character closes his eyes as he's talking to Laura Dern. And so that's one, another one of those crucial kinds of things that we as sound designers try to influence the writers and directors about because that's a visual setup for what's going to happen sonically. It tells you, okay, this thing that we're seeing now, this guy on fire running through the room, and these sounds that we're hearing are in Nick Cage's head. This is what he's remembering. And that liberates us from being literal about the sound because once the audience realizes, even if it's unconsciously, that what they're seeing and hearing is being filtered through the consciousness of one of the characters on the screen, then they're willing to accept just about anything you give to them and, and run with it you know, emotionally and dramatically. So I wasn't limited to naturalistic, totally realistic sound of fire. I could put almost any kind of sound in there I wanted to as long as it had the right kind of emotional note to it. This film is so rich on so many levels. If you understand 
it's, you know, suppose, I think it's supposedly Beethoven once said, if you understand my music, you can never know unhappiness again. <laughs> I, I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. But um, if you understand this movie and take it seriously and watch it a bunch of times and think about it deeply, you'll be well on your way to being uh, a sound designer. Uh, because this film has just about everything in it. It's like a textbook in terms of how to put together a film that takes sound seriously and uses sound powerfully. It's one of the few sounds, few films that are truly about listening. Uh, I've, used, I've resisted using this film. I obviously didn't work on the film, but I've also resisted using it in demonstrations that I've done because it seemed like a cheat because it's about sound. It's about recording this conversation and about this guy, the Gene Hackman character's point of view. And so I think, well, it's, you know, it's about sound, so I don't want to. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's not really about sound. It's, it's about a lot of things, but one of the things that it's about is listening and hearing things correctly and hearing things not correctly. And I don't want to steal uh, Walter's fire, but I just wanted to interject that. How's your fire, Walter? <laughs> okay, what are you thinking as you're listening? What should people... Uh, it's, just, it's a very strange experience to be here. Uh, we, we started shooting that film 31 years ago in next month. Um, so it's just it's very strange to be be here in London listening to this faint uh, echoey sound coming over the telephone and talking to all of you there about it. It's, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it feels very present. It, it, I, I feel like I, I just didn't I just finish working on that film. <laughs> Walter, do I have this right? Is that the first movie that you edited? Uh, it was the first feature that I edited, yeah. How did you handle that first shot? I mean, if you could just, how did you come, if you'd never done it before, how did you know how to do it? Um, well, uh, the, the only, only uh, uh, way that I interacted with that shot, I was, I was uh, working on the, um, uh, I think I was working on the the assembly of the the the, the stuff on the ground, and and they were shooting the that opening shot uh, uh, as the last thing to shoot. And I got the phone call from um, uh, Francis's assistant on the set saying, "How long should this shot be?" And uh, you know, I was uh, first of all I had I didn't have any experience. This was my first film editing, so I thought, "What? The director is asking me how long the shot should be?" Um, but it was supposed to carry the credits on it, and they wanted to set the zoom. They had they had a new device that would automatically uh, zoom a shot electronically. Um, you didn't have to use your hand to to turn the lens. It, w it would turn. Uh, by uh, remote control, and you could set it to creep very slowly. It's a technique that Francis uh, uh, had used at the beginning uh, of The Godfather for the zoom back from um, the undertaker's face. And here he was using it the opposite way, zooming in on this scene. So I quickly calculated how many credits there were and multiplied by some X factor and phoned it back in, and that's, that's how it wound up being the length that is. Um, the, there was a tremendous amount of footage for all of the, the material in Union Square. All of the conversation was filmed 
as a real event. It was it was treated documentary style, and and Cindy Williams and Fred Forrest were in among a few people who were acting, but most pe- most of them were just people who didn't know they were being photographed. I, don't, I have no idea how they dealt with the rights issue. Um, but a lot of those people are innocent victims of uh, the film trap has, has caught them here. But I think there were six cameras shooting um, all the time for a week. Um, so I, this, and this was the first thing they shot. So after the first week, I, I sat there uh, looking at this mound of footage thinking, oh my God, <laughs> now what's going to happen? Um, but you know, you you uh, you start to thread your way through it and uh, uh, find out where the good pieces are um, and start to knit them together into uh, something that can tell the story. When we were doing the sound check earlier in the day with Walter, um, he told me this term, the acoustic being. It's so great hearing you as the acoustic being. I am, um, Randy. I'm going to ask you now to introduce this next piece of film that you're going to show. Okay. <coughs> uh, what is it? It's, <laughs> called, it's called Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. Uh, can I say David one Lynch. more quick thing about the conversation <laughs> uh-huh. before? That's why I didn't know. I was still in conversation land. Um, Stay with it. We, there, the session before this in this room was about uh, mistakes and accidents and how sometimes good things can come from those. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the, the greatest successes ever from an accident, if you want to call it an accident, happened in this film. Um, and it had everything to do with uh, Mr. Murch, who's on the other end of the phone line. Um, the Fred Forrest character, the guy who's walking around with the young woman in Union Square in San Francisco, which is where that is, um, at one point says he'd kill us if he had the chance, talking about apparently a bad guy. Um, And you hear that phrase over and over again through the film as the Gene Hackman character is playing back this recording, this surreptitious recording he's made of their conversation. Yeah. And you don't realize as an audience member until the end when the Gene Hackman character realizes it that that's not really what he said at all. He said, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And so uh, one of the many, many, many things that I learned at the uh, knee of Mr. Murch um, is that uh, people uh, are filters. And the, one of the central irony of, of this, ironies of the story is that Gene Hackman character, who's a master recordist, who's a master filterer of conversations, ignores the most important filter of all, which is the filter of his own consciousness, and he realizes that through this whole time he's been hearing the wrong inflection of what was said, and he realizes at the same time then that this young guy is not the good guy, he's the bad guy. And that didn't occur to the filmmakers until post-production, when Walter was listening to various takes of that scene and one time, Fred Forrest said it differently. And uh, the, the classic light bulb uh, went off in Walter's head, and he thought, hmm, maybe that's the movie. <laughs> and then went about re-editing the film in order to make that one of the centerpieces, if not the centerpiece of the film. 
How's that for a useful mistake? <laughs> speaking of okay. mistakes, we're going to hold off on Wild at Heart for a moment, because speaking of mistakes, Joe, when we were talking about this panel and talking about mistakes that become discoveries, had a Lulu. So. Uh, I, um, as a monologist on the radio, it was always very important, uh, the, the quality and the timbre and the, the, the way my voice sounded. Uh, and I was very self-conscious about it. It was always very important. In any event, I, many years into my career, one day I was, I, had I w would always record in Dolby. And I had recorded uh, a monologue in Dolby and I was editing it, listening to it, and it sounded remarkably wonderful and uh, uh, it, the voice quality was just searing and, and gritty and I was thinking, my God, what, this is amazing what you're doing. Uh, how did you, uh, and then an engineer came in and he said, what's the matter with you? You, you, uh, this, you recorded this in Dolby and you're playing it back in non-Dolby. That's why you have, you have too much hiss and, and, uh, and then I realized that, uh, you know, it, and he switched it back to Dolby and then it was my normal voice, which I despised, and, uh, <laughs> and then I went back to the, the non-Dolby, which was full of pops and uh, crackles in my mouth, which were a problem that I had to edit out, but the, the, the quality of it was astonishing to me, and so that was what I did in, in the future. I always recorded in Dolby, played back in non-Dolby, and presented the non-Dolby version of my voice with all the mouth noises and pops edited out. <laughs> and uh, so we have uh, an illustration of pre-error Joe Frank and post-mistake uh, Joe Frank. Okay, but one thing, Todd, um, we have to switch CDs because we just, that's a different CD than what's in there and you want to go to Joe Frank Night, track two on the panel CD and there'll be track two and then track three. So you'll hear the difference. We call it before and after. <laughs> oh no, that's the second. I'm sitting at a dinner stop, party. Stop, stop. Attended by Paul Pot, Hitler. <laughs> uh, this is the one that says Joe Frank Knight. We apologize for throwing curves. Yeah. It's Haywire, isn't that the word you mentioned? Haywire. Before? Okay. So this is the On way the I panel CD. I'm sitting at a dinner party attended by Paul Pot, Hitler, Stalin. This is after. And <laughs> Mom, seated at another smaller table. Astonishing. The idea of cataclysm was not so improbable or remote. Tremors were recorded every few weeks, Isn't that and hideous? a major earthquake had been predicted. The mountains were moving to the ocean, and the coast highway, built between the mountains and the ocean, buckled under the advancing pressure. When fires started, most of them caused by arsonists, they spread quickly, fueled by the Santa Ana okay, I think we've heard enough of that the one. Fires and, uh, off. and you'll also notice another thing, uh, which I, I noticed it was a plaintive kind of quality. I would end a sentence on a slight up note instead of going down. And so there are two differences. The other is this one, you'll see. Let's see if we get the right one now. 
I'm sitting at a dinner party attended by Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Seated at another smaller table are Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic, Pinochet, and some others that I don't recognize. And then there's a third table, sort of a children's table. It has shorter legs and smaller children's chairs. And sitting there are Richard Speck, Gary Gilmore, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and Charlie Manson. And they're all wearing party hats. They're not very much respected by the heavyweights. They were small time. They didn't get much done. <laughs> they were the pikers. So you can hear the difference. And have you stuck with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no going back. No going back. No. You've created these entire worlds and uh, movies in my mind with just your voice and music. How'd you do that? Uh, these are really impossible questions. I. I um, I really don't know the answer to that. I, I think uh, selecting music is extremely important. If you find the right piece of music, uh, you're halfway there. And um, I, I don't know how to And respond. how do you find these pieces of music? And they loop and? They're looped, yeah. You listen a lot, and you try to find something that uh, you think is really evocative and is going to carry, is going to actually deepen the emotion uh, of the piece and uh, is going to enhance it. And uh, I mean, sometimes I've actually thought that music was more important than anything else. That if you had, uh, you know, I'd listen to my monologues in the clear and I'd think, ah, I don't know, it's not really that good. But then I, when I added the piece of music that I selected, suddenly just took it to another level. And uh, I think some people have a, are gifted at finding the right music. And if you can, if you do that, you really are, uh, you really are enhancing your work. And if you find a piece of music that is sort of all right, then then you're not. So, are the pieces created at home when you're writing your monologues, or are they created more in the studio, or how? What comes first? Are you hearing it or seeing it? Or well, first of all, I have to say that this work is all very collaborative. I hardly do anything exclusive, you know, entirely on my own. Um, I write uh, collaboratively with David Rapkin, who's here this evening. What David. happens, or this morning, I mean. David, you want to just stand up so Yes, people David, please stand up. Know you and take your bow. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> please uh, remove that gentleman now. <laughs> uh, and uh, the way I work with David is I, I have an idea. I know what I want, uh, generally, what the subject is going to be that, we're going to, that I want to talk about. And then uh, I record our conversation. And we'll talk for hours uh, sometimes, back and forth. And uh, I record it all. And then uh, I listen. And I sort of put it together on the basis of what, uh, of we, of what we collaboratively come up with. And in terms of other, you know, if there are programs with actors or with others, they also contributed, uh, contribute because these are all improvised uh, works. So uh, I'm really rarely 
alone in, in doing this. And the, the sound of your voice is so crucial to it. And, and the, that technical change, for me, turns it into a kind of whisper, mm -hmm. which makes it more intimate. You know, when you're whispering to somebody, you're telling them something intimate. And so it, you feel like you're more inside the character, I think, because of that when you're listening to it. You know, one of the things I think that's wrong with a lot of public radio is that it's painfully it sounds painfully intentional and coherent. I must be extremely clear <laughs> while I'm saying this to you. And it tends to lack life. And things that are full of life are eccentric and have a lot of character. That's one of the great things about your pieces. Uh, you really feel like they're practically living things. Oh, thank you, Randy. Walter? Uh, yes. I was thinking when Joe was talking about the Dolby voice pre and post Dolby, the, uh, some of the stories about Apocalypse Now and finding the tone of Martin Sheen's narration in that. Can, can you talk about how that uh, voice of Willard came to be? Um, sure. It, it, um, the, um, um, one of the key sound editors working on Apocalypse uh, is a, a gentleman named Les Hodgson, who's an English sound editor. And he'd worked on Moby Dick, um, John Huston's Moby Dick. And that also had narration. Richard Basehart was the, the character who played um, um, I, uh, the, the one who survives. What's his name? Um, anyway, he, um, uh, they, they, he was narrating the film, and Houston was unsatisfied with it, and they, they'd been working all morning, and finally uh, Richard Basehart, who was in the other room, um, leaned, look, was looking down at John in the, in the adjacent room, uh, and he said, John, what do you think I should do now? And uh, he was talking very close to the microphone by accident, and John whirled, uh, Houston whirled around and said, that's what you should do, exactly like that. Do everything, do it just like that. And um, it, it was, had a very similar kind of sound to uh, Joe's voice uh, that we've just heard uh, compared to what Randy was parodying before, which was narration spoken uh, from, a, from a podium, so to speak. Um, and of course, the sound engineers uh, there, this is back in the 1950s, freaked out because just what Joe was saying, no, but that will get all the clicks and the pops. And, and Houston said, we'll deal with that later. That's what I want. I want that intimate sound like somebody's uh, head is lying on the pillow next to you and they're talking to you that close. Um, so that's how they did Moby Dick. And when we were doing uh, Julia, which also Les worked on, uh, we had we, the same thing and we used the same technique and then we, when we did Apocalypse Now it just seemed to be the way to go and uh, so we, we just positioned the mic abnormally close uh, to Mar Martin Sheen and told him to talk as if he's talking to somebody on the pillow next to him uh, just a very low intimate voice and we, we uh, positioned it to minimize the artifacts the, the clicks and pops uh, that, that come from that proximity and what we couldn't fix uh, what we couldn't what what got through we would just edit out just uh, as Joe was saying but it is an extremely effective way at making 
somebody else's voice sound like they're coming from inside your own head. It's the closest we can get in radio or in film to uh, a, a speaker inside the head of the audience um, and, and thus rendering it extremely subjective. Okay. We're going to take a look at a bit of Apocalypse now. I think we're going to go to Wild Heart. This is so painful. We are five things into a 14 excerpt list that we obviously aren't going to get to all of, so we're jockeying. I think let's leap back to Wild at Heart. Sorry. Uh, it's a David Lynch film. Uh, most of you probably know that. Uh, written by, uh, from a novel by Barry Gifford. Uh, David Lynch movies are always playgrounds for sound. Um, David is a visual artist, as a lot of you know, and it's been my experience that a lot of visual artists also have great imaginations for sound. And um, it's often the writers, actually, I think, that make the most problematic uh, directors because uh, too many of them think that everybody should be talking constantly. But that's my prejudice point of view. What's, what made up the construction of your fire in that? How did you build that mm -hmm. sound? Some of it's obviously real fire. Um, some of it is real fire slowed down. Uh, probably the, the process that I use more than any other in fabricating sounds is making recordings of real world things and then altering the pitch of those recordings. It's a long tradition in, in film sound design dating back to the earliest days when people would uh, slow down um, optical film tracks to get similar effects, and then they'd slow down or speed up magnetic film tracks to get the same effect, and now we use uh, Pro Tools plugins or other devices to do similar things. When you lower the pitch of a sound, it tends to make it bigger, it tends to make it more powerful and more mysterious, and so I was able to make some of the fire sounds uh, slightly larger than life, bigger roars, bigger crackles, by pitching the sound of the original fire crackles down. And in a sequence like that, we almost always start with some recordings of fire that are mainly crackling and some recordings of fire that are mainly roaring so that you'll have control ultimately over which of each. Um, it would be kind of silly to start with half a dozen recordings of fire that all were basically the same sort of uh, palette. We're coming into the home stretch here, the last round of everyone's work, so let's hear another piece of Joe's. And uh, why don't you set this up for us, Joe? Uh, this is uh, from a program called Rent a Family. Uh, it uh, involved a, uh, the ex-wife, lonely, um, despondent, and reaching out to her husband, her ex-husband, who is now remarried, and, uh, and she makes a rather odd request in uh, the course of this phone conversation.
speak to Arthur, please? Eleanor. Eleanor, this has got to stop. I mean, I, this can't go on. Surely you're aware of that. May I speak to Arthur, please? Eleanor. Listen, I understand what you are going through, but what you've got to know is that it's not working. None of what you are doing is working. May I speak to Arthur, please? Okay. Arthur! What is it? Arthur, I've been thinking. Yeah, what? I... I would like to come and and visit with you and, and Kathy for a while. Now, now hear me out. I won't be any trouble. I can do all the things that I'm sure Kathy has no time to do because she has her job, and I, I can cook cook nice nice things for you both, and and I can clean the house, and I can do the gardening, and and, and I can take care of all of the little things that you don't have time to do or that you don't like to do, you know, are there those things, and, um, and I'll stay, I'll stay out of your way, I won't say a word if I'm not, I'll be sort of a housekeeper, a silent housekeeper, see, see, the thing is that I, I need, a, I need, a, a, I need a family, Arthur. stop at this point. <laughs> for the sake of time that we're running long, uh, there was another conversation which really gets out of hand between uh, the, the married couple and the ex-wife. Um, the way this was done was that I had the actress, a wonderful actress named Barbara Summers, at KCRW in a studio with me, dim, very dimly lit, and I walked her through what I wanted her to do, what her situation was, what uh, her circumstances were, but she had to, she had to use her own imagination, uh, imagine how she felt and what she wanted and, and act on it. I had uh, Mark Hammer in Washington, D.C. with his wife um, on the phone, and uh, we did it as a real phone call and uh, the way it worked was I was sitting opposite Barbara and uh, they would do part of the scene and I might uh, interrupt them and say no 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 that's not the direction I want to go in I'd rather you uh, develop this particular idea or 
Mark, that was excellent. Do more of that, uh, or and I might have some suggestions about uh, what one or the other of them might say. But they were all using their own language. They were always, uh, they were simply working off the cues that I was giving them. So it, and when you do it that way, it's just is so much better than radio drama, conventional radio drama. Which the minute you turn on your radio and you hear, you hear it, you know, oh, this is. Act, these are actors in front of microphones doing a, you know, BBC or whatever. You know instantly what you're listening to. In this case, I actually had people who would call the radio station wondering if this had been recorded. Uh, these were real phone conversations between real people with music added. So, uh, and that's why I've always worked uh, improvisationally with actors, is because you really do get a, an authentic authenticity which you cannot get when you put a script in front of anybody. I defy anybody to put scripts in front of actors and actually make it sound like it's real. I don't think it can be done. So that's how we did that. How did you decide um, who was going to be on the telephone? I, I, I was, as I listened to it, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe the the ex-wife should be the one who sounds like she's on the telephone. And the, but then the more I listen to it, the more I think, well, maybe it's, I, I'm doing all this rationalizing. Mm -hmm. Tell me whether it has anything to do with reality. I'm thinking, but it's more important that we hear the emotion in her voice. And so it's more important that we be with her and these other people be the ones who are you know, on the phone, at the, on the other ends of the phone. Or was it just an accident of geography who happened to be where? Uh, geography certainly played a large part in it because I was in Los Angeles with the actors and uh, they were in Washington, D.C. But also it was her story. It was a story told from Eleanor's point of view and uh, there were other scenes where she was simply in monologue and uh, that's why she was in the foreground and they were on the phone. Okay, if you can hang with us just a little longer. We're going to close. The last piece of footage we're going to see is from um, The Godfather, and we are going to ask Walter to set it up. And we wanted to do a whole section on music and using music in your work. I think Joe touched on it some. But Walter, would you explain what we're going to see and, uh, and how you did it? The, um, the history is a, a wonderful filter because um, you know we all associate Godfather uh, with the music that Nino Rota uh, brought to the film, but in fact, when we were making the film, that there was a uh, that was a huge bone of contention between the head of the studio, Bob Evans, uh, who hated that music, and Francis Coppola, and I, I should say myself, who thought it was great and, and right. Um, but we were right down at at the level of the final mix. Um, the film was supposed to come out in six weeks or so. And uh, the, the music arrived and uh, the, the, uh, there was this big explosion. And um, significantly, Evans wanted to get his friend Henry Mancini, the same uh, Henry Mancini from Touch of Evil, to write some hard-hitting, tough music for the film. He thought that what Nino had written was too uh, soporific and romantic and just wouldn't wouldn't energize the three-hour film the way it needed to be energized and um, in the end a uh, combination of Francis's fantastic charismatic uh, uh, persuasiveness and the, the, the threat that he would remove his name from the film 
convinced Evans that, well, maybe we can make this music work after all. Um, and um, the, um, but that he had real reservations about it. And um, the, the, the battle was, the, the, the Mancini element was removed, but still there was this element of dissatisfaction. Uh, and right in the middle of that, Francis turned to me and said, well, you know, Walter, I have to go back to San Francisco because I have to direct uh, private lives for ACT, and so do the best you can here. And you know, I was a 28-year-old. Uh, this, is, this is the first time I'd ever worked in Hollywood. I'd done a couple of films up in San Francisco, but here I was in the center of Hollywood at Ground Zero Paramount Studios with the big film of the year and this hot potato in my lap. Um, and I, I learned earlier on, um, uh, on some films that when people say something is absolutely wrong, they really don't mean that. They mean that one or two things are wrong and that has infected everything else. Uh, but they, have a, they, don't, they can't say that because they don't know what it is that's bothering them. Um, so I, I, listen, I talked to Evans uh, obliquely about this uh, and learned that the piece of music that he disliked the most was the music for the horse's head scene. Uh, uh, it, it must have struck some particularly resonant chord with him because it was about the head of a studio and about revenge and blood <laughs> and money and everything, and he felt that the music wasn't uh, up, up to it. And so I listened to the music, and I tried to imagine hmm, as the head of the studio, and in fact, the music as written had a, was a waltz theme, that, uh, whether that was intentional or not. Uh, kind of a carousel music because of the horse's head, and I think the head of the studio's name was Walt, so uh, Nino said, hmm, I think I'll write some carousel music here. Uh, and it, it, it got uh, to a point, uh, but it didn't get there very quick. Um, and by that time, the scene was over. Um, but most of, the, most of the music was a kind of lyrical um, element to it. So. Um, I, I went back to the sound department and ordered another transfer of the music. Uh, this is the back in the days of magnetic sound. And uh, notice that the music had a, an A-B structure. It had a, 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 an opening uh, element and then a, a secondary development of that, and then it returned to the first element again. And I thought, well, what would happen if I slid the second element, this other transfer, and put the second element up against the first element so that you, you opened with the A element, the lyrical element, and then it went to B, but then it also went back to A. And so you get these two things rubbing up against each other. And so I did this, and it, it seemed to have a kind of a, a dizzying, uh, 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 emotional, uh, disorienting effect, which is what the scene is all about, somebody waking up, finding that uh, their bed is full of blood. Is it their own blood? Have they been wounded? What's going on? Why is there so much blood? Pull back the sheets and it's the head of your $500,000 horse in bed with you. Um, so I threaded it up and, and called Evans in and played it for him and he was uh, he was very enthusiastic. He thought that this was a wonderful thing and uh, suitably for this uh, me talking on the telephone to all of you 
he said, give me the phone, give me the phone. And uh, we gave him a phone, and he took this uh, phone with a long cord and walked up to the screen and dialed New York. He dialed uh, Charlie Bluedorn at Gulf and Western, who was the owner of Paramount at the time. Um, and so he got Charlie on the phone, and then he said, okay, Charlie, listen to this. And turned to us in the back and said, roll it. And he held the telephone <laughs> up against the screen, uh, and we rolled the scene of the horse's head, uh, the discovery of the horse's head. And Evans, the head of the studio, shadow was being projected on the screen as we watched the head of a fictitious studio discovering a horse's head with all of this crazy music going on and screaming and blood. And at the end of it, uh, he uh, turned to, uh, picked up the phone and said, well, Charlie, don't you think that's not fantastic? I can't imagine what it must have sounded. It probably sounded like what your, your guys' uh, demos are sounding like to me, uh, to Blue Dorn. But anyway, the, it, it turned the corner, uh, and, and he, was, he felt that there was some more promise with the Nino Rota music after that. So why don't we take a listen? You, you can hear, once you know what you're listening for, you can hear this extra development in the music.
we hate to bring this panel to a close, <laughs> as you can tell. I mean, but, um, and we're sorry we didn't have time for questions. And uh, there are so many people to thank. Walter. Oh, you're very welcome. Joe Frank. Thank you. And Randy Tom. Randy has a certain and Laura Fulcher. And, and we have Kate the horse's Fulcher. head here. <laughs> yeah, and before we go, Laura Fulcher, Kate Volkman, thank yeah. you. And also Alan and Todd, who commandeered this entire mix from back there. And, and the Zoe entire Trump. staff. You don't know what Third Coast went through to arrange this for everybody. The phone hookups, the DVDs, the big screen. I mean, Julie and Johanna and Lauren and everybody went the extra nine yards to make this panel possible. So thank you. And American, we have to thank American Zoetrope because they provided all those uh, DVDs that Randy didn't provide. So thanks to American Zoetrope. Randy has a final treat In for case us you're <laughs> before we go. And since we all know that uh, artists are uh, people with serious problems who magically, uh, when they're lucky, find ways to turn those problems into art, which is uh, called sublimation. In, in physics, there's uh, another kind of sublimation, which is when something changes from a solid to a gas without being a liquid on the way. Normal ice melts from the solid into a liquid, and then it turns into a gas when it evaporates. This is dry ice, which is frozen carbon dioxide, and it sublimates. It goes from a solid to a gas without being a liquid. And somebody way back, Walter may know if he's still there, in the history of sound, or maybe they weren't even in sound, realized that if you pressed a piece of metal against dry ice, it sings. And so this is the sort of thing I do every day. <laughs> and you have to keep heating up your uh, butter knife <laughs> so that the temperature differential is uh, big enough. down a couple of oh. boxes. <laughs> it's like I, I want more, but I guess we don't have time for more. Um, for the Kitchen Sisters. And a quick plug that they are going to have a new series coming out, a morning edition starting in the fall, The Kitchen Chronicles. Yes, it has something to do with lost and found food and a lot more, and you'll be hearing about that, I'm sure. Okay, now we have to like 
go through a buffet line like you've never had before in your whole life. I mean, you're just going like, to speed through it. You have um, 40 minutes to eat, and then you're going to go to your breakout sessions. The only thing I want to tell you is the breakout session that was in the middle room, um, sound seizing is now going to be in the executive room. There'll be a sign, so there won't be the sound problems we had yesterday. Thank you, everybody. This was wonderful.